hot. Ah, what the hell are you two doing? So, so you can eat us just like Shax? What? We saw it, Mariner, back there at the compound. Shax was stung by a Mugato. Yeah, and you stabbed him and licked his blood. They really messed you up good in that lab. I had to suck the venom out. What lab? We know what you really are. Wait, wait, wait. Did you find out that I'm a black ops secret agent? You weren't even hiding it, Section 31! Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith and joining me on the bridge. This is Tyler Orton. Just learning today that his genitals are sensitive to phaser fire. I don't want to know how you learned that. <laughs> Just use your imagination. <laughs> and we're here this week to tackle the latest episode of Lower Decks Season 2, Mugato Gumato. No, no, I, I think it's actually pronounced uh, Mugatu Gumato. <laughs> Now, we have some news as well we'll be tackling in regards to the upcoming Star Trek Day and some of the offerings there, as well as some perhaps legacy characters joining the new Star Trek universe. But before we get to that, we'll talk about the episode. So, Tyler, you know, we were thinking, you know, Lower Deck seemed like on the upswing last uh, last week's episode where we tackled episodes two and three. Did you feel that continued with the latest episode? I like I, I think it's got some momentum going, but I would still rank this below the previous two episodes. Not to say I didn't like it. I loved the pacing of this one. It wasn't as manic as it's been in previous weeks. I could follow along with everything. What you and I have complained before, like a lot of these cartoon action sequences, we kind of check out. But um, I didn't have that issue here. I liked it. There were enough laughs. Um, you know, so I, I ultimately would probably rank it uh, three out of four. Uh, so far this season, that is th- uh, episode three out of four episodes. But uh, what, what are your, what's your overall takeaway on uh, Mugata Gumato? <laughs> I am in the same boat as you, actually. This one probably falls third, but I think it's pretty close to the last two, where I feel like yeah. they're um, establishing consistency. Uh, it doesn't feel like kind of these phoned-in stories like that first episode was. It feels like there's some genuine inspiration. And... I just remember when we talked about that premiere, how we were like, even thinking like, this doesn't have sort of the Trek connections that make it, like, that make this series super fun. Whereas, again, these last three have really brought that in. There's a lot of references here that are a lot of fun, but they don't feel like they're just being tossed off for the point of references. They're helping build the world of Lower Decks. They're adding to the stories. So I thought this one, again, captured that sort of feel of what I want from Lower Decks. And I am just so excited to have the Mugatu back on Star Trek. I mean... We saw them on the original series in the episode Private Little War, and there's such an iconic design. You're like, why have these not appeared? Why did they not get worked into, say, a JJ movie that could have afforded them? Why not one of the previous movies? I'm so excited to have them here, and I think animation was the perfect form for them. Well, you know what? I also think there's more opportunity for merchandising. There is some merch out there, but uh, maybe they can rival the Ke- uh, Keishan doll that we were talking about a couple weeks ago. 
speaking of which, uh, yeah, Keishan is very obviously still serving aboard the ship. I don't know exactly in what capacity. We did see him behind the tactical console when Shax was indisposed on the planet. So I guess after taking the job as the security chief, he is now the deputy security chief. Is that it, Cam? I would have a better sense of this if he ever spoke. <laughs> yeah, you know, you can't pay those big uh, Keishan uh, actor dollars, right? Apparently not. It's the sort of thing where you and I were wondering how this would work. I still have no idea. Um, I'm going to hope they figure this out. Although, do you remember with like Discovery when it first started, you and I spent like weeks trying to figure out some of the positions on the ship because they were so vague about it? Maybe that's what they're going to do here? We still have yet to meet the uh, chief engineer of the U USS Discovery at this point. Did we meet the chief medical officer? Uh, never. It, uh, yeah. It's kind of, it was, no, <laughs> we never did. And people will say, no, no, it's Culber. Or maybe it was Dr. Pollard after Culber disappeared for a little while. The problem is that we saw or we heard the announcement for the chief medical officer to please come to the sick bay while Culber and Pollard were, or while Culber was in a scene. But the problem is Culber outranks Pollard, lieutenant commander to lieutenant. So Pollard can't be the chief medical officer. Culbert can't be the chief medical officer, so we never found out who it actually was, and it was just very bizarre. Whoever that uh, chief medical officer is, they were very committed to join Burnham and crew in journeying into the uh, far-off future and abandon their family. Um, boy, I'd like to see them on screen <laughs> one day so we can properly acknowledge their sacrifice. <laughs> I, I just want to add one thing, though. Like, um, the, the um, chief medical officer to uh, this uh, sickbay, I think that was from season one or season two. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, not yeah. not necessarily so somebody who was more than happy to abandon these folks uh, and uh, stay behind in the 23rd century. But I, I guess we we've kind of figured out that Jet Reno is by default the chief engineer, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You know? But everybody thought that it was um that it was Stamets for the longest time, even though he always wore the science officer uh, colors. So it was just it was so bizarre, like how we never really knew. Well, I mean, we are completely jumping off of Lower Decks, but maybe this begs the question. In a show like Discovery, where you're working through the warp, or not the warp drive, but the uh, spore drive, like, what does the chief engineer even do at a certain point when everything's being controlled by the spore drive? Well, I don't know. If there's, like, a conduit, an EPS conduit that's malfunctioning, yeah, you know, Stamets isn't going to go fix that. They're going to have to have somebody, you know, requisition parts, you know, create ship duties. And, um, look, the, the show would, or the ship would go to warp at times. Not always, just the spore drive. And I don't necessarily think that Stamets is an expert in the warp drive. It's just... I, I, I don't know. Look, uh, remember how, like, season one of Next Generation, like, they had a rotating crew of uh, chief engineers, um, you know, Argyle being the most notable one? Um, <laughs> maybe that's kind of their whole deal. It's like, yeah, why do we have to paint ourselves in a corner and name who the chief engineer is? I mean, it's the sort of thing that doesn't matter. Is it entirely just annoying to us? Like, is it the sort of decision that, like, no regular viewer cares and we're just getting hung, hung up on it? You are 100% in that it doesn't matter from a storytelling perspective, but for Trekkers, the issue is is that they want some continuity. They want analogs in what they've witnessed in other Star Trek series. You know, all the other Star Trek series has a chief engineer as a main character or a doctor as a main character, a pilot as a main character, you know? And so 
when you don't have that analog, it's very baffling and, and people get frustrated. But from a storytelling perspective, I don't think we lost anything by not having a chief engineer in those first couple seasons of Discovery. No, I don't think we did. It's just the sort of thing I like to know the kind of the power structure of the ship. Like, you know, who are the command team? Um, you know, whoever the chief engineer was, I didn't see them getting a, a you know, medal at the end of uh, season one discovery. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> so it becomes weird. You start to go like, wait, why do all the underlings get the medals? <laughs> well, uh, so jumping into Lower Decks, though, it's like I am yeah. kind of unclear what Boimler's job is or what Mariner's job is. I, I have an idea that Rutherford works in engineering. And of course, Tendi is, uh, you know, up in sick bay. But day to day, you know, kind of like Mariner and and Boimler just do whatever. They, they go to whatever kind of like low-grade job they're assigned to. There's, there's no actual like significant position as Laura Dex would, you know, that they go to every day. Yeah, like Mariner goes on a lot of away missions more than Boimler. So maybe that means something. But Boimler, we see him on the bridge um, in ops. Um, ooh, what else does he do on the ship? He hangs out in that fix-it room with the run-down shuttle uh, quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it's difficult for me to say exactly what his job is, because we've seen him at Helm, but I wouldn't say that he's the helmsman for the ship. You know, it's just one of his kind of relief duties that he'll fulfill, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, um, we see him do lots of Trek BS stuff, you know, just rearranging whatever configurations in a hallway stuff like that and typical thing that in the old days of trek it would just be some dude doing weird arm motions in front of a blank wall that <laughs> kind of stuff <laughs> yes yes so anyway like, but the, more to the point though it doesn't really matter what their jobs are from a storytelling perspective for for me and it, for me it's what they're doing with regards to their character arcs and with the the story arc that's going on here so that's why i don't need to have it nailed down when it comes to them i think what we were getting at though is just it'd just be nice to to know what the command structure is within uh, uh, most shows. And um, we, we've got that here in Lord Dex. Like, we know what everybody's mm -hmm. job is, save for the main two characters. Yeah, and it's just the question now of exactly how it works out with, uh, you know, security. But other than that, like, the show's been very consistent in establishing exactly who, you know, the captain is, the first officer, doctor, etc. So, yeah, it doesn't have those problems. Well, jumping into the show itself, the episode itself, though, you know, there, there's, I like the idea of missions like uh, we've got another animal control operation, you know, and I'm just like, uh, that's the sort of stuff that I picture <laughs> the Lower Decks crew being up to rather than fighting giant uh, heads in outer space. Although I thought sending them down without phasers and what have you seemed, uh, boy, a little unsafe given what we've seen of the Mugatu in uh, TOS. They look terrifying. <laughs> Um, and look, I, I, I've never seen them rub their horns that hard. And like, that looks like a very terrifying <laughs> moment as well. I, were you surprised at how graphic that sort of sex scene was? Uh, yes. It like, uh, it, it was kind of doggy <laughs> style and you had a looker. I was just like, I did not think that would uh, be uh, appeared on Lord X, but I got a hearty laugh out of that. <laughs> I thought you were going to say something else there. Oh, <laughs> Okay, you were a okay. watcher. You were another watcher <laughs> yeah, in this okay. whole scenario. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, there's other graphic stuff going on, like the uh, so-called uh, Mugatu uh, biologist who uh, revealed mm -hmm. like 
Uh, well, I've read five books on the Mugatos, so of course, you know, I'm qualified. And then he's ripped apart and eaten, and I was like, <laughs> uh, I was like, wow. And even like Tendi's broken bone, where like you can actually see it splitting out of her skin, uh, is probably the most graphic episode of Lord Dex that we've seen so far. But uh, I don't know. I, I, you know me, I, I'm, a, I'm a little squeamish, but all of those moments, um, I, I, I kind of thought it was like, yeah, go for it, make it as graphic as possible. Yeah, um, I want to circle back on Patingi, their <laughs> brief guide there. But even in the intro where you have them in the, you know, doing the jujitsu that Riker did famously opposite his father, Moose Riker. <laughs> I like that we constantly... I forgot about Moose Riker. I like that we just refer to him as Moose Riker as if that is his actual name. But How did we yeah. get started on that joke? I have absolutely no idea. His name was Kyle, right? It was Kyle Riker, yeah. but uh, I think <laughs> he lives in Alaska. We started yeah, sure. calling him Moose for some reason. Yeah, I don't know. but like anyway. there was a lot of blood and you know Boimler throwing up in that sequence as well. Like this episode really doubled down on a lot of the uh, slapstick gore and violence and sex stuff. So it was definitely a a more like unhinged episode of Lower Decks than maybe we've seen yet. But I thought this whole bit with like Patingi being the guide was actually really genius. I thought it was initially like oh they're gonna do like a you know Doctor Goodall type character <laughs> where we get to actually maybe explore a little bit of the uh, Mugatu that we haven't seen. And just the reversal, it's basically Grizzly Man, like this poor dude. <laughs> you wanted Jane Goodall, you got Steve Irwin. Yeah, no kidding, no kidding. A very grim end to this character, but I thought it was a great comedic setup and payoff. Like, that's something you and I have, you know, nodded to the odd one that didn't work on Lower Decks as much, like the, um, you know, the Death of Shaxx payoff. But like, by and large, this show is pretty good about its setups and payoffs. Well, it's also like they didn't have to drag this character out throughout the entire episode. I think he was on screen for maybe 90 seconds, and then it, it hit us off with that punchline like right away, which I can appreciate. Yeah, like he was a memorable design. I thought the voice actor actually was pretty fun there. It was Robert Gilbert did the voice, and he gave it a lot of personality. It's a type of just like quick character that's really effective. It's something shows, you know, animated shows like The Simpsons do really well, where they can introduce Disco Stew. He has like three lines and everyone remembers who he is i gotta ask you this so like before you watch this episode how did you typically pronounce the eponymous character or the eponymous animals names mugatu mugatu do you think that was because of watching star trek or because of watching zoolander yeah i'm glad you asked that because i think a lot of people know the will ferrell character's name and would pronounce it that way uh, and of course, Ben Stiller directed that film and was a massive and is a massive Star Trek fan. But for me, I saw that movie once in theaters and it's not something I ever revisited. So I would guess my pronunciation came just from the use in TOS. I don't know that I was ever throwing that word around after Zoolander. Okay, I've seen Zoolander uh, at least like three times. So uh, I, I probably heard the term Mugatu from Zoolander before I ever saw it on uh, Private Little War. So, I don't even know that I made the connection when I watched, you know, the TOS episode for the first time that, you know, there was that uh, Zoolander um, name thing going on. It, it was completely over my head. So I think it was a little bit further down the road when I realized how big a fan Ben Stiller was and circled back to this, to this movie Zoolander, which again, I, I saw, you know, when I was, what year was that movie? Was it like 2002 it, or something? Or? It may have been 2001. Right. So yeah, I was like 20 years old or something like that when I saw it. And I just, 
I, I didn't watch start watching Star Trek till I was about 28, I think, 29. So it was a pretty big gap there. Eh, so about 30 years ago. <laughs> it's so true. So true. Oh, tragic. Oh, well, one of the things uh, I, I really liked about the episode as well was they didn't brute force their way out of what was going on with the Ferengis capturing uh, uh, Mariner and company. It's like Rutherford and Boimler said, okay, well, let's try to do a, a cost-benefit analysis for greater long-term profit like that's the kind of star trek that i enjoy versus watching like you remember the first three or four episodes of lower decks so it was non-stop you know invasions of the ship by alien forces which you and i got bored with uh quite quickly this is the stuff that i kind of wish like uh, we got more of you know in, in all the star trek series as of late you know trying to have the characters think their way out of situations and actually doing things for the better, which, you know, we see that with the Ferengi. They're like, okay, well, if there's profit in it, let's go for that then. And it had the fun setup of them walking in with the arena cannon that, you know, they lead you <laughs> to expect one thing and then twist it into a payoff off the game we saw them playing right at the start of the episode. And, you know, I, I like that Mariner is, like, really enthusiastic about what they're doing and saying, you know, those two beautiful nerdy men are, you know, winning this day with the power of math. You know, that's the sort of thing I really like that the show does where it's acknowledging the geekiness of Star Trek but championing it as well through its characters because Mariner could easily be the too cool for school character. But I like that she's championing the values of the storytelling that happens on Star Trek. So... I, I love this solution. It, it also just worked with the Ferengi. I mean, what better way to beat the Ferengi? It's not that much fun. It's a, it's a little fun in this episode to see Shaxx, like, beating up a Ferengi. I mean, these Ferengi were pretty uh, dastardly. But it's a lot of fun to see the, you know, this math approach to the Ferengi. And, of course, that's going to work. Like, that's the best solution possible. Well, you mentioned, you know, Mariner uh, in this one. And my favorite moments with her, and one of my probably favorite Mariner moments of all time is at the very, very end when she goes up to the gossipy bartender and she starts giving the guys, you know, street cred, uh, you know, that these were the ones that took on the Mugatas and were able to really save the day, you know, with uh, kind of, well, she was using kind of brute force sort of uh, uh, explanation. But I, to me, that, that was just kind of a sweet moment, especially after guys uh, thought that she was a Section 31 operative for um, very, very um thin tenuous reasons but um yeah i mean it, it's the sort of thing we have seen on the simpsons um that sort of very thin like this character you've known maybe a murderer or something like that um you know i always think of the flanders episode where bart's looking through the window uh the rear window riff purple drapes <laughs> yeah it's the sort of thing of course it's ridiculous but i thought the show did it well and that you know you have them confronting her and bringing up, you know, her behavior. And she's acknowledging that a lot of this was done as a way to kind of create the shield around herself to push other people back. And that she considers them her friends. Like, it's both a, you know, wacky comedic, um, you know, setup for an episode. But it also delivers on the character of Mariner. Which, that that's great. And also just the dynamic of having Boimler and Rutherford work together. We talked about it last week where we had Tendi and Mariner. And we said, well... We'll probably see the two guys, you know, in an episode together. Well, we got to see it here, and I thought it worked really well. I thought their dynamic was really natural and felt so obvious that, I mean, why did they not do more of this in season one? It seems like it's pretty easy to mix these characters up. 
Well, I think those guys had uh, great chemistry for sure, and it was great to see that. But, but Kim, when you made reference to The Simpsons just a moment ago, are, are you alluding to the fact that uh, next week's episode is going to be about how we find out that Mariner is not actually Freeman's real daughter, that the real daughter is going to come back from Vietnam uh, from an internment <laughs> camp? Is, is that it? And then they will beam them into space and never mention it ever again. There you go. Worst episode of uh, early era Simpsons, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I always fall down on the um, coyote voiced by Johnny Cash episode. Um, at least it gave me some good chili recipes that uh, you know I, I can mm. still use. So, <laughs> right. Um, what about the attendees uh, subplot going on? This one didn't quite work for me until we got uh, over to uh, Dr. Tiana, and honestly. Um, when I have the look of disgust on Tendi's face where she sees Dr. Tiana saying to Shax, I just got my physical. I could heal you all night long. Like, that was a great moment. <laughs> it seems like the showrunners are very clear that Dr. Tiana is a fan favorite because she's gotten far more to do in these first handful of episodes than she did in season one. It yes. definitely feels like they were like, Okay, the comedic possibilities are really there with this character. I think Jillian Vigman is really strong as the voice. Like, this character has so much personality that it's kind of that Mr. Burns factor. I'm sorry to keep making Simpsons references, but because I'm old, most of my animated references are going to be back to the Simpsons as opposed to Family Guy or whatever. And even then, I'm now, <laughs> when I say Family Guy, I'm also announcing like a 20-year-old show. But um... No, you're more of a Ren and Stimpy sort of acolyte. <laughs> The Flintstones, yabba dabba doo. Am I right? Um, yeah, so I like, though, that, you know, when you think of The Simpsons, um, Mr. Burns was a character that they realized pretty early on had a lot of comedic potential and gave him a lot of hilarious episodes. And it feels like they're honing in on Dr. Tiana as well as someone that they, I don't know that we'll see her starring in episodes, but it feels like they're finding a lot of organic ways to give her a much more boosted role. Well, honestly, I think she had the best line in the episode where she told Tendi, you know, this isn't your patient, so get the F out of the way. Like, that <laughs> that legit made me laugh out loud. I mean, the whole sequence in, like, the uh, the Jeffrey's tubes where it's just like, her racing around like she's in the movie Alien was getting a <laughs> laugh out of me. And just the whole kind of reveal of her being the last patient to not get the checkup and, like, the shifting eyes as she's <laughs> slowly about to, you know, make her getaway. I thought that was a ton of fun. I I'm looking forward to seeing more of this character. It seems like... I don't know. I feel like season one, they were working more with Ransom, trying to build him up. And it feels so far like they're kind of backgrounding him a little more this season. We'll see if we'll see if they do more with him. But it feels like Dr. Tiana is the one that's taken more of the lead here. Uh, I think after they saw episode one, they decided <laughs> maybe no more Ransom heavy episodes for the time being. I just don't know that they've figured out what to do with him yet. Like, it feels like Tiana, they're finding really fun things that play on sort of cat behavior and also just the personality of the character. Like I don't, and I've said it in past episodes of this podcast where I just don't really know what Ransom's thing is yet to really work with beyond the obvious. Whereas this character feels like it has a little more dimension. I mean, he's supposed to be the hot shot sort of douchebag, And, you know, he had that, he had one line in this episode and he was like, Ooh, uh, venomous and the strength of 10 men sounds like my ex and the joke isn't like you're not supposed to laugh at that you're supposed to laugh at him being such an unaware sort of like doofus and i just i didn't get a big laugh out of that character moment myself yeah i think they just need to find something else with him 
Like, just find another angle on that character, and you're good to go. Because I think, you know, Jerry O'Connell is bringing a lot to the voice performance, fun design. Just feels like they need to just explore that character a little more. If he's just walking around with his guitar uh, around his, like, strapped around his back, uh, playing acoustic guitar every moment he get, gets, you know, based on his month in Barcelona, um, I think that could be his thing. You know, something funny that they could kind of go into. Yeah, like, give us a little more there. Just a little more. What did you think of seeing Shaq's back more in a prominent role in this episode? It, it worked for me. I mean, I, I know I, I whined a lot about his random reappearance last week. I hope they want to pay that off in a meaningful way. But um, I think he actually had much more to do this episode than we ever saw him do in uh, season one, save for the finale. Yeah, um, and we had his whole um, sampling Mugatu dung um, joke. Um, we got to see some uh, fun sequences of action with him. I did dig the moments where they're just like walking and they're all looking very casual and he's like down on all fours practically like scouring around. I, I would like to see them just, yeah, continue to play up that sort of <laughs> very over-the-top aggressive um, approach to being a security chief. Like I think we can have fun there. Did he remind you of David Cross in Arrested Development when he was being cat-like during a burglary? He does now, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, just as we wrap up here, though, I, I got to give a shout-out to the Anbu Jitsu game, you know? Um, mm -hmm. I also like the how the crew, or the Lower Decks crew, were playing uh, Diplomats, in which the goal is everybody has to lose, because that is kind of what negotiation is. Um, I still find it funny that Ben Sisko had never heard of Section 31, but now Rutherford is calling it out by name and accusing Mariner of being a Section 31 operative um, as she plays five-finger fillet for some <laughs> reason, you know? That was a good gag, though, that, um, well, the, the five-finger fillet thing, it's interesting that the show has had some kind of on-the-nose aliens references. I think, like, last week it was, like, Boimler going through the Jeffrey's tubes, pushing something in front of him, which is very much shot like the bishop scene going through the tube and aliens, and now we have the bishop knife finger thing. Is bishop, like, their new <laughs> point of reference for uh, Lower Decks? I'm a little um, confused by this. Well, I guess based on what happened to the biologist, uh, yes, you could just wear him like a backpack, mm. right? Yeah, no kidding. Um, and... Uh, I thought it, uh, one of the good lines uh, that really made me laugh was, because they kept saying, you know, like Starfleet, Black Ops, throwing terms like that around. Um, but then you have that moment where she uh, says, you know, did you think I was Black Ops? And um, Boimler's like taken aback, like she'll even admit it out loud. And he just goes, Section 31. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which, because people in Section 31 love to reveal that they're in Section 31. I thought that was a pretty good payoff. Where's her black badge? <laughs> now what did you think of the character of otis uh working in the bar uh well look he's gossipy um uh, look if we get a regular bartender i'm down for it i think maybe we could have used that last season but look there's still like it's only 22 minute episodes it's like 10 episodes a season like they are working with like uh you go back to the next gen era it's pretty much like one quarter of a season in terms of like absolute like minutes on screen that they're working with. So like I understand that they still have to kind of plant their seeds, find their grooves, and hopefully it's not going to take them what would be the equivalent of season eight in next gen years uh, to figure mm. things out. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. I mean, it took them till season seven of TNG to get Ben the bartender in there, so. <laughs> it would be great if they bring back Ben the bartender for Lord <laughs> X. Hey, I'm down for it. Um yeah, so I, I just thought overall this was a really fun episode, and 
I, you know, let's let's keep this consistency going. I would still like to see though them just raise it up to that next level. You know, where we get a you know Cupid's errant arrow or something like that in the near future. But if it continues at this level, I mean, I can't say I'm unhappy because I would have prayed for this level of quality during season three discovery. Well, look, Cupid's Aaron Arrow was episode five of season one, so I, I think it's going to be interesting for us next week where we can definitively discuss what we think of the first half of the season. It's weird how we're almost at that point. It is, yeah. By the way, I just want to give a shout out to the animation team. I thought the scene of the Mugatu Stampede was really beautifully done, and that's something we don't... You and I tend to reference more the character stuff going on, but I thought just the animation of that sequence was really beautiful. I know you and I have kind of said that the action sequences aren't our thing, but I really do think the show is like just beautifully rendered just from an animation style. I like the looks of the characters, the looks of the ships, the planets. Like, I think they've really captured what I'd like to see from a Star Trek animated universe. Mm. Now, speaking of that universe... Perhaps there's some news we can jump over to. Yeah, we had the release in advance of the Star Trek Prodigy theme song and opening credits. Uh, going into Prodigy, you and I were maybe a little skeptical, but um, I, I don't know what to say, Cam. Like, I really like uh, this animation style that they're tapping, at least based on the opening credits and the, the opening theme. It's uh, from one Michael Giacchino, who, of course, has done the uh, all three of the Kelvinverse movies. This is one of the top composers in all of Hollywood right now. I'm digging his score here. And just looking at the look of the uh, new ship, you know, it's got a cool look to it. I, I can't wait to, you know, kind of discover the ship more and kind of get into what makes it special, get into its personality. Um, I, I'm more excited about Prodigy now than I, I have been since uh, we first heard about it a few years ago. Right, yeah, and I mean, I thought the ship evoked Voyager without being Voyager. Yes. It didn't feel like just a copycat of that ship. It felt like it was, it's the sort of thing that if you see it, you immediately start to, you know, conjure up memories of watching Voyager and going through the Delta Quadrant, but I thought the design was just fantastic, and uh, Michael Giacchino's score, you know, here's a guy who did the Kelvinverse films, and I thought really did a lot to bring a lot of life to Star Trek music, whereas... When you get to some of the, you know, previous films and stuff, it feels like they're kind of running out of that creative inspiration. I like a lot of Dennis McCarthy's work and a lot of the composers working on the Berman era, but it feels like, okay, these guys have been doing this forever. Let's bring in some new blood. And I thought G. Kino really proved himself. And just the fact he came back and came up with a whole new Star Trek theme that is really dynamic, really memorable, but also doesn't feel obvious. It doesn't feel like, I don't know. Maybe some of the other uh, recent Star Trek opening credit scores where I go, yeah, this sounds vaguely like a Star Trek theme, a la Discovery. This one actually feels dynamic and original. I, you say vaguely sounds like a Star Trek theme. I say vaguely sounds like elevator music in which it's so hard for me to just kind of hum the melodies, whereas it's not difficult at all for me to hum the melodies of the other shows. And I'm just, I, I guess, like, uh, Jeff Russo is a far more talented person than I am, but his music style is just not my thing. And, and you mentioned Dennis McCarthy a moment ago. I, I, every chance I get, I need to just, like, urge listeners, go listen to his score for Star Trek Generations. It is not my favorite movie, but it is one of my favorite scores for Star Trek ever. It's such an underrated uh, score. It's, it's just gorgeous themes that uh, he does throughout it especially during and you, you'll laugh cam but when they do the uh, the horseback riding between picard and kirk <laughs> it, it's that, that might be my kind of uh, favorite uh, moment musically throughout the entire film 
and it all crescendos when they jump over that uh, gap, right? Yeah, with, with uh, the centaur, uh, Anita, or what's her name? Um, no, oh my god, uh, Antonia, Antonia waiting Antonia. at the other side. <laughs> yeah, um, the, the one thing I thought with these credits, I loved the visuals they showed us, but a minute and a half of those visuals was a bit much. Like, I, I think... Um... You and I were talking about it on WhatsApp, and we were like, are they really going to have to give us 90 seconds each week of like opening credits? Yeah, that's immediately in my head. I'm like, well, I'm sure they're going to do a cut down 30 second version or something like that on the show. But then I went and actually started looking up the credits on other um, current Star Trek shows. It's like, well, that's actually about the time level uh, of all of these shows. So I don't know. Like the thing is, you know. Here is the problem. (laughs) This is a children's show. Yeah. Kids don't have the patience for a 90 second opening. I don't have the patience for it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, exactly. Like I, you remember Ninja Turtles? It was like Teenage Mutant. Yeah, yeah I, that went on for about twenty-five seconds. That perfect amount of time got you excited. Yeah, I mean exactly, and that was the case with all all those shows. You know, those animated shows we would have been watching as kids. Um, Ghostbusters as well. Uh, Ren and Stimpy. But also on top of that, the visuals of those opening credits on a kids show are usually very dynamic. Um, you know, you go to the Ninja Turtles one, they're really flashy. They're, I'm sure anyone who grew up watching that show can instantly picture all the images that go through those credits. Whereas here, it was a little similar to the Voyager opening, where it's just like the ship flying through various parts of space. Um, again, it, it's all well and good, but it's too long. Just a little too long for the what we're seeing. It's not... The images aren't dynamic in terms of their differences from one another enough. Like, you need to have more variety in what we're seeing here. Yeah. I, I look, I'll say this, though. One thing that might go underappreciated is the long shots of the ship, where you're seeing the ship from a great, great distance. We don't typically see that in Star Trek. And I think Justin Lin actually did that to great effect in Star Trek Beyond, especially when they're using the warp effect there. I think it was the best warp effect we've ever seen in Star Trek. And the really like wide shots that we see uh, in Star Trek Prodigy's opening sequence where you just see the scale of the universe and the planets that they're traveling to, it really is breathtaking. And so that's why I'm growing more excited about kind of the uh, animation style and the tone that they want to strike. But I just, I, I keep wondering how much this will hold the attention of young children as this is the target audience. Yeah, that's going to be the real question. And it's tough to say. I mean, I we'll get to it in a second, but you know, Star Trek Day is coming up in, you know, next week at the time of when we're recording this. So like hopefully we see a trailer and get a better sense of the characters, but um I I was a little surprised they didn't find ways to work the characters into these opening credits. I thought that might have worked well. well um they, I, I they, they did. Yeah. One character. Yeah, yeah. With uh Jane Janeway's face did make an appearance. True, true. Um I will say though Lower Decks holds the current title for best opening credits on a, you know, currently running Star Trek show. I agree. What what's your favorite uh credits uh throughout all the series? Oh, that's an excellent question. Um TNG is really up there um i i think i would is it heresy to say that like lower decks is a more fun opening to watch than the tng one or the ds9 one um that's more fun i i I could agree with that yeah yeah like i mean the thing is they're both trying to capture the tone of what their shows are so it's not really fair to compare the two in terms of which one's more fun because tng is not trying to be the crazy wacky show with you know comedic beats in its opening titles I think I would say the TNG one's the best. I gotta give it to Voyager. 
I just mm. find it absolutely captivating. You feel like you're on the other side of the galaxy. It's what the show is about. Um, it, it's like it's one of the shows where like I, I'd probably skip the opening credits on Netflix uh, fewer times than I would say Deep Space Nine or Next Gen. Right. Yeah. I mean, I tend to watch the Next Gen one a lot, and actually, I'm recently you know been going through watching uh tng and again like there's something about the way that that opening title sequence sets the tone that just i find almost necessary to watch to lead me into the episode and i also want to say actually one of my greatest joys lately has been i'm in season five right now and people might think you know oh yes of course the inner light you know so many great episodes to revisit my real joy of doing this rewatch has actually been just watching episodes like Hero Worship and Silicon Avatar. Just like episodes because I've seen yeah. them once. Like, it's almost like yeah. getting new Star Trek <laughs> and being like, yeah, that's not great. But like, I'd forgotten this character moment. You know, there's little bits here and there that I'm enjoying. I got to say. No, for me, it's just kind of the, the reason why people are ultimately drawn to Star Trek series and why there's fandom for one versus the other Um it's the character stuff, though. It's people are drawn ultimately to the characters and the journeys that they're going on. And when you get like those kind of little uh, lost moments, you know, it's just kind of a joy to rediscover. Yeah. And there's always just really memorable character moments that it's like, huh, like this episode may not be great. I don't know that I cared that much about Alexander coming back onto the ship, but like there's good wharf moments. I thought Troy had some really great stuff in that episode. Uh, you know, even even the weakest TNG episode offers up memorable character moments and that's something that some of the newer star trek struggle sometimes more with i think well i can't wait to rediscover the great character moment of the magatus humping each other uh, a couple years down the road <laughs> one of the greatest of character moments but um yeah, another show that um has maybe not as many memorable character moments as we like is picard and i believe there was some picard news correct yeah, maybe uh, skip ahead five minutes if you want to avoid spoilers. It's just, it, it, it's the return of a legacy character, a very iconic one, just in case you don't want to be spoiled. I don't think it's a huge thing. And honestly, I think by the time the series premieres, you'll know who this is. But uh, we just got word that uh, one Annie Worshing has been cast as the Borg Queen. So this will be the third actress to play the very iconic leader of the Borg. Um, I think I've seen her in the Kiefer Sutherland show 24, uh, so I'm familiar with that. And I also looked her up on Memory Alpha, and she actually played an alien on Enterprise, so she's got her Trek credentials there. But um, she's got the look of the Borg Queen. The only thing I, I, I want to say, though, is that um, Alice Krieger and Susanna Thompson, they're both pretty pretty phenomenal in their roles there I, I don't necessarily have a problem recasting the borg queen i think it's kind of this eternal character that could be recast as many times as needed i just wonder if the actresses were even approached or if age played any sort of issue whereas come on you're just putting them in makeup so i don't know why that would but i i wonder if the age factor and just the sheer amounts of makeup. You know, we heard the stories about Alice Krieger saying how miserable it was getting into that jumpsuit and getting the makeup on. And I think when she came back for Star Trek Voyager's Endgame, like she had it written into her contract that the suit has to allow her to go to the bathroom when needed. Yeah, and and she's talked about that at the cons, just how brutal it was to wear that outfit. And, you know, that Voyager episode's like, is that 20 years old now? 
about that. So about that, yeah, yeah, like if she's struggling with it twenty years ago, you know, age moves for all of us, and I just wonder if at this point in her life, it's like uh, I'm not, I'm not putting that thing on again. Um, Susanna Thompson, I mean, yeah, she's ma- a sixty-five-year-old woman. Yeah, you know? exactly, right. So like, and maybe Susanna Thompson's in the same boat. I don't know. Um, it would have been fun to see Susanna Thompson at least come back in the role, but I also don't know what they're planning to do with the character. Like, maybe there's some reason they want a younger actor in the role. I don't really know. Well, like if we can kind of piece together, and we are not Reddit detectives. We're, we're not trying to ruin things for anybody. But if we could kind of piece together what we think the season it's going to be about, it's Q somehow putting Picard and company into a parallel universe in which things are quite different and so i wonder if that even fits with that whether this recasting even kind of fits within the theme of that of the season the upcoming season sure like maybe put us back in a timeline where we need you know a younger character for the borg queen i i will say this like i'm the borg princess <laughs> i'm totally open to seeing what they do with the character i mean the borg queen uh, has not gone wrong at all yet. Like, we've seen nothing but great appearances of that character, so I'm open to it. Even Unimatrix Zero, Borg Queen is pretty cool. Um, but, like, my immediate response was a little bit of, like, oh, we're doing more with the Borg, huh? And I get it. It's going to happen. You've got Seven of Nine on the show. Picard obviously has a, you know, obviously a very um, long backstory with the Borg, but... Just after the Borg stuff in the first season of Picard, I was kind of hoping they were just going to take a fresh page and just do something completely different. That was kind of my hope, but, you know, I I can only be optimistic that they're going to have a good angle on this character. What a waste the Borg stuff was in season one of Picard. Like, we, we were absolutely intrigued by the trailers. What could it possibly mean? And it just feels as if they totally biffed that it was just like I, I don't even know what it was supposed to represent and it was very clear when the executive producer Akiva Goldsman came out and did an interview earlier this year and he just admitted that they didn't really have a planned ending for this or kind of making it up as they went along I mean think about it Hugh died in a knife fight and like <laughs> Narissa like blew all of the other Borgs like into space like yeah. that was the outcome to the whole Borg storyline in that episode or in that season and i mean you did get seven of nine plugging into the station cool that was a great moment but like it also didn't really add up to anything important or really that memorable and so like my whole thing was with first season of picard there's a lot of things that bugged me about it the borg stuff obviously but also you know Gollum picard which we've referenced my hope off of season two was that there was a sense of like yeah, season one didn't really work. Let's kind of reposition the show and go in a different angle, which looked to be the case, you know, with characters like Q and Guinan coming back. I really thought it would just be like, let's go off in a whole new adventure. The Borg Queen, again, hopefully it's done great. And I'm on this podcast saying I'm so excited they tackled the Borg Queen in this way. But my initial reaction was like, oh, the Borg again. Okay. I I wonder if they recognize the storytelling errors they made last season with regards to the Borg and and that they were just as underwhelmed as we were and maybe they're trying to make things right and honestly so her casting announcement is coming kind of late in in that like it it seems as if they've already filmed I would say the the vast majority of the season and it doesn't mean that she wasn't cast early on but I, I 
I also just wondered, like, maybe it's just a, a short flashback sequence, you know? Like, that's why it's, like, a younger actress. And, look, she's got the look for it as well, so it kind of fits in with the chronology. So maybe it's a, a quick flashback sequence. I could buy that. They need to do something new with, I don't know, Locutus or with Seven. Who knows? But um, I'll we can better judge it once we actually see it. But otherwise, I, I'm I'm kind of excited to see what they want to do with the Borg Queen. Like, it, like I, I don't feel necessarily that her arc ended with Endgame. And it also feels like the Borg Queen was a character we were always going to see back at some point. There's just too many possibilities there. And... All I ask is that they do it well. That's it. Like, I don't... And that goes for any legacy character. They can bring back a character I don't even like that much. Just do it well, and I'll walk away really happy and cheering them on, you know, on this podcast. Well, what if 20 years from now they uh, bring back uh, Elnor for as a legacy character for a new spinoff? I think I might be weirdly excited. In the way that, like, you and I would be so excited if they announced Shakar was coming on to Picard. We would be so <laughs> blown back that they were bringing back Shakar that I feel like we would be genuinely anticipating it. Um, I mean, um, oh my god, I'm totally blanking on the character's name. I apologize. What was the character for A Measure of a Man who was, like, thrown into Picard Season 1? I don't recall. Uh, oh. oh, no, yeah, Maddox, Maddox. Thank you, Maddox, yeah. yeah. You and I never really thought Maddox would be a character that would show up this many True. decades later on Star Trek Picard, but there was a certain novelty to that. Like, I like that they're not just grabbing heavy hitters, and, you know, that's something Lower Decks is, I think, going to do as well. And please, bring in all types of legacy characters. I don't need to see all the, like, shining stars of Star Trek. I want to see an Argyle, a Sonia Gomez, like throw characters like that in there. You know, that's really fun to me. Well, okay. So the curious thing is like they're bringing back the board queen, recasting her. They brought back Maddox, recast him. Um, who do you think the next legacy character to, that they'll bring back that will be recast at this point? Oh, and they also recast Echeb, of course, as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's three. Yeah, that's a great oh, and they, question. And they recast uh, Deanna Troy and renamed her uh, Vajazel. <laughs> oh, harsh. Um, the greatest villain of all time in Star Trek, yeah. Um, villain of villains. Villain of villains. Um, okay, so it's got to be someone who's not like a name. Like, it's not going to be someone like Tuvok, for example, or, you know, like a really recognizable Star Trek icon. It's going to be someone who was maybe a recurring or maybe a really memorable one-episode character. So that's where it gets uh, difficult, I think. Dr. Pulaski? Um, I don't think they're ever going to acknowledge Pulaski ever again. But, like, that's the sort of <laughs> character, maybe. But uh, also Diana Muldoor, I don't know that they would recast her. Well, but Kev, do you think when Voyager ended, we ever thought that Icheb would be returning to the Star Trek franchise once again? Not in that way. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> certainly not. Oh, I'm like racking my brain for like a good answer here. Do you think it could be someone like a Naomi Wildman? Okay. Yeah, I just, yeah, maybe, yeah, the the seven of nine connection. I could buy that. But I don't know if they'd recast her because I think the actress is still out there. uh, She's still working? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Scarlett Palmers. I I mean, I don't know how often she's working, but um, I'm sure she'd throw her hat in the ring. I think she's recognizable enough that fans would protest versus i don't think fans are even gonna know that the borg queen has been recast or i don't think people really recognize that maddox was recast as well you and i weren't even sure after we saw the guy on screen we had to like look it up on imdb yeah uh, yeah we did do you have any suggestions for characters that they might bring back and recast 
Yeah, I I I thought Pulaski would be uh, one. Yeah. Um, I I guess I don't know. Like, it it kind of breaks my heart to say this, but like Ensign Rowe, perhaps. Oh, that's a good one. Oh, hmm. Although, I mean, I feel like that character's fate we can kind of write on our own, just given what happened to the Maquis. Um, hmm. Ensign Rowe. Yeah, that's a good call. Oh, um, Damon Bach. Oh. Oh, maybe. He's already been recast uh, before, so why not do it a, a second time? <laughs> Tora Ziao, back from yeah. the dead. <laughs> there you go. Uh, well, look, back from the dead as well. Uh, the first four Star Trek movies, Cam, uh, they're, they're being put out, uh, remastered on 4K. Uh, the price is... Price is up there. Um, yeah. Pretty, if you divide it, you know, between four, it's pretty, it's actually a decent price for 4K transfer. But uh, are, are you excited? Will you consider investing in this for your own uh, 4K television enjoyment? Yeah, I'm going to buy them 100%. But um, the price has kind of thrown me because, you know, again, they're put out by Paramount. Um, four movies. The Indiana Jones series came out fairly recently on 4K, and I got all four of them for... 70 something dollars on in in Canadian dollars on Amazon versus the Star Trek ones which are like $93. So I'm wondering if they're going to drop the price in the near future. Uh I don't I don't think I'm going to be rushing out, you know, a first day sale yet. What about you? Maybe wait for Boxing Day, see what kind of sales are out there. The other thing though is from what we understand there is going to be the 4 K version of the director's cut of the motion picture coming out next year. I'd kind of rather just hold off for that and then buy the other ones piecemeal as they come out. Because uh, I, I I have to imagine they won't always just be in a box set, right? Yeah, I wouldn't think so. They usually wait uh, maybe a year and then start putting them out individually. That happened with the um, Hitchcock 4K set that came out fairly you know, fairly recently, I bought the whole set, and now they've just, over the last month or so, started putting out the titles in that set individually. So I would think that would happen. Um, I do think I will buy the set of four. Um, I, I, I'm not a fan of the way they're releasing them, but I also know it's probably just for the for the purposes of not charging fans an arm and a leg. You know, you put out all even six of the originals all together in 4K, you're going to end up charging over a hundred dollars. So I'm sure this way is more affordable for people. But just the idea of the one through four box set, it just, it grates on me in a way. And I, it's like the obsessive collector part of me. Just, it, it annoys me. It'd be hilarious. They do uh, one through four, then five through eight. And then um, we get Insurrection and Nemesis as the uh, final two to be released in this era. And I'm sure those will just go flying off the shelves. Well, thank God they're not doing that. But it's, yeah, five, six, and seven is the next set. And then uh, First Contact through Nemesis is the third one. It's like, okay, I guess. I don't know how much excitement there'll be for that final box one. Although, the thing is, they've always got one that's going to draw people in. Because you've got Star Trek VI in one of the sets. You've got First Contact in the other. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm uh, I, I'm honestly kind of excited to see what we'll get out of this and how it'll work. I'm just... I, I'm hap- happy to wait. I, I've watched, you know, the motion picture probably three times since we started the podcast I, I can wait a couple more months if I can get the director's cut. Because I've yet to watch it. So, 
Yeah, and also the fact there's not any new features other than just the 4K transfer, that's something that will also not necessarily propel me out of the gate to grab it, you know, on the day it drops. So unless unless I see that price drop, you know, in advance of its release, maybe then I'll buy it. But yeah, I I'm okay waiting right now. So coming up uh, September 8th, uh, we do have Star Trek Day. Um, I, I guess we'll recap it uh, with uh, the Star Trek Lower Decks Episode 5 um, as review as well. But, um, Kim, what are your hopes to get from uh, Star Trek Day this year, uh, which is recognizing the 55-year anniversary of the Magnificent franchise? Mm, yes. Uh, how about a trailer for Star Trek Discovery Season 4 that looks interesting? <laughs> That would be nice. Is it too much to ask? Well, okay. I think what we're going to get is probably a, a full trailer of Prodigy. Um, uh, and then, I guess, a Discovery trailer. I don't I don't know. We might get some sort of teaser for Strange New Worlds. Like, maybe one with very limited, you know, footage of actors, if any. You remember that first Discovery teaser? Maybe something, hopefully, better than that. But something along those lines. Uh, was that worth, like... Burnham walking through the sand with uh, Giorgio? Is it like that? Wasn't the first teaser for Discovery just the logo? Well, that's not really a teaser, though. It, well, it kind of was. It was, it was released as the first teaser for Star Trek Discovery, and then we had the but, trailers well, it, that came. It's not a teaser trailer. I, when, I, when I hear teaser, I, I, I think of a teaser trailer. But what is, is it, like, then? It, it's just early marketing. I, I wouldn't call it a teaser. If if it's a logo, what what you're showing off is a logo. Yeah, well, that's exactly what it was, which is why we you know, we're fairly critical of this kind of flop in marketing um, when they released it. But I, I mean, if somebody like if the marketing department wants to call it a teaser, I call BS on that. You can call mm. it whatever you want, but it's not what a traditional teaser has ever been. You know, going back through like cinema history. Well, yeah, exactly. So I, I don't know if that we're going to get a lot. Like, I'm sure some people are really hoping we get like a two and a half minute long, you know, Strange New Worlds trailer. I just, I, that seems unlikely. I think they're going to put their marketing muscle behind Discovery and Prodigy, wouldn't you think? Yeah, and I, I don't necessarily expect them to do like anything more for Picard because we already got a teaser for that. And I think uh, they'll probably wait a little bit longer for a full trailer. I think we should get the full trailer for season four of Discovery. I would like, I, I don't think it's out of this world uh, to get a Strange New Worlds uh, teaser. And I mean that in like kind of the, the sense of like, maybe it's just a shot of uh, Anson Mount, Ethan Peck, Rebecca Romaine on the bridge. Like just something like that. Maybe the Pike voiceover of like space, the final frontier, and we see the Enterprise and then maybe get a shot of the actors, something like that. No, it's actually just them walking down that Paramount Mountain for that Paramount Plus, uh, you know, uh, streaming service. You know, like uh, th those commercials are big for uh, you know, a couple of weeks uh, earlier this year. Is Jeff is Jeff Probst with them? Yeah, um, and Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> How did we not cover those on the podcast? I uh, know we should have devoted an entire episode to covering those. Uh, that marketing uh, effort from Paramount Plus. <laughs> Do you think? Okay, they announced the Borg Queen casting. Do you think they put out maybe like something to do with Borg Queen on Star Trek Day, like okay. an image even or something? Yeah, I think that's possible. I wonder if it's likely though, because I think if they were going to do that, why put out um, 
this Borqueen news today. And we're recording on Thursday, um, September 2nd. So that, that's why I feel so weird about it all. Like, I just don't, it doesn't seem obvious to me. Well, okay, you know, as soon as I said Borg Queen, I suddenly was like, no, that's a stupid thing to say because you're right, this this announcement just came out. Here's the better question. Do we see something with Guinan? Because that's the character they've held hmm. back on. Okay. Yeah, you know how like we got chills when we saw Seven of Nine appear yeah. on screen in that uh, Picard teaser? Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, Guinan can do the exact same thing, except from what I understand, she's going to be recast. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Oh, and and by who? <laughs> uh, I'll let you do the fan casting for that. Game. Okay. Um, I was gonna say, um, seeing Data in the teaser also gave me chills. <laughs> Just the House of Wax version of Data. <laughs> I'm still getting chills. That <laughs> was a fright to see. It's just so bizarre to me. Like after they had the um, some like uh, novice went and read uh re-rendered Luke Skywalker uh, from Mandalorian, and it looked far better than what these professionals were able to accomplish. And then somebody did the same thing with Data, where they re-rendered Data, and it looked far better than what we saw eventually. Look, okay, the teaser Data looked horrifying. The uh, TV series Data looked a little bit better in Picard Season 1, but the re-render from the fan, it looked even better than what the professionals did. I just, I don't understand what's going on here. I don't get it either. I, I we need to talk to a, like a VFX person to explain this yeah. because it doesn't make sense to me why like fans basically on their computer can create better imagery here. It, I'm sure there's something that that you know that I I don't know. I, I like I would just love to hear a VFX person explain this to me because when you see these like characters like Luke Skywalker in Mandalorian or um you know Data, it's like I just don't understand how the creators are watching it going like. Looks good. I'm happy with this. But like, what other choice do they have by the time it comes back and uh, the VFX department says, yep, this is the best you'll get. (laughs) It's like, oh, this was a mistake. (laughs) Okay. Well, I think on that note, our assignment is complete. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, we want to hear from you. Jump on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash subspacepod. Um, I suppose, as Tyler said earlier, we'll be next week tackling episode five of Lower Decks as well as Star Trek Day. Um, you can, of course, find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam, B is in, VFX gone wrong, Smith. You can find me at Reportin, that's R, R is in re-rendered Cam Smith, that's a sight to see, <laughs> E-P-O-R-T-O-N. Even normal Cam Smith is a sight to see. Yeah, true, true. <laughs> okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. complete.